no one could ever accuse Jesus of soft-selling things, of putting the tough parts of what it meant to be a Christian somehow or another in the small print, burying it at the back of his brochure, as it were. Jesus puts it right at the very top of the list. In case any of you are concerned, simply to be spectators here, he says, I need to let you know that there is no place for complacency, there is no place for half-heartedness if you want to be one of my disciples. Today on the Songtime broadcast, Alistair Begg takes us back to our study in the Gospel of Luke as we talk about the cost of discipleship. We call ourselves Christians, but have we really weighed the cost, what it truly means to deny ourselves, to take up our cross, and to follow Jesus? Stay tuned for that, but first, we'll be hearing from Greg Gilbert as he has a new book out that helps us to understand how to read the Bible. The many voices are coming together for that one message. I'm your host, Adam Miller. You're listening to Songtime Radio. One of the things that we strive to do here at Songtime is teach through the themes of Scripture as they are laid out for us in the various books of the Bible that we're teaching. As we've been working our way through the Gospel of Luke, we see the, the main emphases and the themes that are popping up to, to talk about how Mary and Zachariah at the very beginning had completely different responses to the angels and how Mary is, is praised because she heard the Word of God and she did what was appropriate. Well, while Zechariah took a little more convincing to get him to do what he was supposed to do, that we see that same theme popping up throughout the, the rest of the narrative. In fact, those two roles are played by other Pharisees. Remember, Zechariah was a priest. He was a, of a Pharisaical group and a very religious group. Well, Mary was a Galilean, and that's where Jesus spent his primary ministry talking about the gospel. Those themes are carried out, and we want to make those uh, themes very obvious as we connect the dots, because what we don't want to do is just teach a, a verse in the Bible. You get that one verse figured out, but you don't understand it in its context. And uh, as you've probably heard from Dr. D.A. Carson, he likes to say that a verse without a context is a pretext for a proof text. And we want to make sure that we understand the Word of God so that we can understand the God of the Bible. Well, today we're joined by Greg Gilbert, who's written a book on this very subject. It's called The Epic Story of the Bible, How to Read and Understand God's Word. It's right in alignment with what we strive to do here on the Songtime Broadcast, and it is an incredible privilege to have him with us today. Greg, thank you for being a part of the many voices for that one message. Yeah, thanks, Adam. It's good to be here. Good to talk to you. Now, you're a pastor, and uh, I think that background, I can resonate. I'm a pastor as well, and our our hope whenever we're preaching the Word of God or teaching is to help people understand the Scriptures for themselves, not just to rely on us as teachers, but to become better as they grow in their faith, to be better at reading the Word of God on their own. And I know that's really the core of your own ministry, very gospel-based, very Scripture-based. Tell us a little bit about your desire, especially when it comes to writing this book. Yeah, so I, I'm, I'm with you 100%. Our job as pastors is to help our people know and love the Bible more and therefore uh, ultimately love Jesus more. That's that's the point. Um, and I think a really key element in, in that is to teach people to approach the Bible as something far bigger, far more beautiful, far better than just uh, a kind of fable book or anthology where you you dip in and you grab a verse and you say, what does this mean to me? Right. That's not what the Bible's doing. The Bible from 
Genesis all the way through the histories, the minor prophets through the, the New Testament onto Revelation. It's one gigantic epic story. You know, I mean, you know what an epic is from from school. It's like these huge stories with the biggest imaginable themes and foreshadowing and symbolism and, you know, payoffs at the end, all, all the rest of it. And so you can think of like Homer's Odyssey, if you read that in school, you know, or, uh, you know, the Iliad or Lord of the Rings, right? Chronicles of Narnia. Those are epic stories. And the Bible is that. It is just the greatest one of those that's ever been written. Hmm. Yeah, so one of the things I always say with my pastor buddies is like our job to try to get this book inside of people, but you can't just do it with these little sort of in unconnected stories and unconnected scripture verses yeah. that are great for pinning on uh, cushions that you can put on your couch. But uh, really what we want to help people do is understand how all of these stories are connected because uh, 66 books, over 30 authors, uh, over hundreds of years that this is all being compiled. How could it really be telling just one story, one epic story? Well, because, I mean, you're right, 66 books, 35 or so different authors, you know, I think I mean, you, you could say, that, well, the events are spanning, what, 1,500 years or yeah. something? The writing of them is spanning somewhere between 800 and 1,000 years, it seems like. Uh, uh, at any rate, the thing that can draw them all together is that they all are written, ultimately, inspired by one author that's behind them all. Uh, and that's the that's the author, God, who is is writing the story. He's just doing it over that amount of time, which, to me, makes it even more fascinating than just, uh, you know, an epic story that's pulled together by, uh, you know, a single human author, because God is inspiring 35 or so different human authors to write this one gigantic story based on true events, even. Hmm. It's also important to know the sort of background, because you can pick up the Bible and you can start reading it, and it's different genres, it's different types of hmm. literature, and you can walk away saying, well, this is just a collection of varied pieces of scripture that are, that are thrown yeah. together without any cohesion, you really have to know that there is connections to be able to read it and see those connections, don't yeah. you? Yeah, that's right. I, I think like the biggest offender of, of that is is probably the minor prophets. Because mm -hmm. uh, in, our, in our English Bibles, they're all stuck at the end, right? So you've got Jonah, Mike, and Nahum, Habakkuk, you know, all of them, and they're all just stuck at the end. You might have an introduction in your study Bible that tells you a little something about it, but it, it, what, what's interesting to note is that we basically know when, when and where, say, 10 out of 12 of those prophets were prophesying. And we can identify, like back in 2 Kings, when they would have been preaching. And if you read 2 Kings up to that point where like Amos was preaching, and then you go read Amos, it goes into 3D because you're like, oh my gosh, I literally was just reading about that problem in 2 Kings, and now here's Amos nailing it in the king of the time and it just you realize amos is a real dude in a real history that is saying things to to other real people and those things just go into 3d yeah you know i've, I've toyed around with this whole idea of teaching the minor prophets maybe just taking uh, going through all of them one a week just so you can like lay down the sort of structure of them yeah. and teach the main <laughs> i've done that i didn't i didn't take you know 12 straight weeks i did them like three at a time once a year yeah. uh, because it saves your people having to get all minor <laughs> prophets all the time <laughs> but just to have that that help and you do that in your book you kind of break down what different books are talking about but being that there are different genres being that there are different focuses it can it can be a little bit confusing when you're just trying to sit down with yourself and you're doing your daily devotions and read through the Bible in a year. That can be overwhelming for some. Oh people. yeah, oh uh, yeah, absolutely. It's overwhelming for for me. I mean, I've spent I've spent years 
studying the Bible now, and you know, you you drop me into the middle of Leviticus, uh, and I've even preached Leviticus, and I still can't remember everything I said about it, and it's easy to just get get sort of lost in it. So, you know, to have a to have some help in that uh, is is a really good thing. So I did a book with Crossway a Bible actually some a couple of years ago called the story of redemption Bible. Mm -hmm. Um, It's beautiful, beautifully designed thing. But basically what it is, is, is you you start reading the Bible uh, and I go along with you and, and, and sort of pop up in the text every once in a while to say, you know, here's what's going on in the story. You need to keep this in mind. You need to, you know, here's what's, here's what's going on. And, and then you sort of follow my, order of reading the bible too so in the middle of second kings i'll pop in and say hey let's go read you know amos or nahum or habakkuk and then at the end of that i'll send them back to second kings you know to keep reading but it's so helpful to just have help uh in in reading the bible and understanding it we've been talking with greg gilbert about his book it's called the epic story of the bible or how to read the bible and understand god's word it's a great resource and one that i can commend to you especially if you want to understand how to make sense of the bible not just memorizing individual verses or having a little collective thoughts about different passages but how to tie them all together. There's a big difference between knowledge of the Bible and discernment of how all of these themes are interwoven. And this is a great book. I I have certainly benefited from it. Uh, I enjoy this sort of content that deals with tying the themes of Scripture together. It's something we strive to do on the Songtime broadcast, and it's a book that you should have in your library. Find out more information by giving us a call. It's 508-362-7070 or head over to our website at songtime.com. Well, today we're continuing our study in the Gospel of Luke. And as we're striving to make sense of the Word of God and all of the themes of Scripture, we come now to a very central passage in the text. Here in Luke 14, we see that Jesus is laying down the line. He's already told his disciples. In fact, it was our theme verse a few weeks ago. Jesus called his disciples to deny themselves, to take up the cross daily and follow him, to lay down their lives and he would lift them up. This is the theme that is repeated as Jesus tells them what it truly means to be a disciple, what the the cost truly means to be a Christian. Now, you and I call ourselves Christians, and we use that term very loosely in our culture today. It's anyone who identifies with sort of Christianity. But the truth is, Christians are those who represent the name of Jesus, who bear his name. We are adopted into the family of God through Jesus, and therefore we're to represent him as uh, our Lord and our Savior and represent our Heavenly Father as we advance his kingdom on earth. So the question is, are we truly Christians and how do we evaluate that? Jesus explains here in Luke chapter 14. In our continued study today, we'll go to a message from Alistair Begg. Gracious God, we do pray that with our Bibles open before us that you will give to us ears to hear and eyes to see. May neither the speaker's voice nor the thinker's ears cloud the issue. Penetrate, Lord, the very fiber of our being and show us what it means to really follow the Lord Jesus Christ. For it's in his name we pray. Amen. What are you doing with the dash between the dates? For those of you who don't even understand the question, it's a question that I first heard when I was watching with some others a video on the life of Eric Little. 
And the narrator appeared on screen at the end, and he said, you know, eventually all of our lives are going to be reduced to essentially one hit with a chisel on a tombstone in between the dates announcing your arrival and your departure. So that you put your front end in, whatever it is, in my case, 1952, and then the chisel mark could be already made now, and all we wait for is what the end will be. The question he asked was, since our lives are all going to be reduced to what is represented in the dash between the dates, what he said are you doing with your dash between the dates? It's quite a question. I think you would agree. And indeed, the answer that we're able in the honesty of our hearts to give to that question not only has a lot to say about how we're spending our time and our money with whom we are spending our time, but it also has a great deal to say about the eventualities of our lives when we think of them in terms of eternity. Somebody pondering that in an earlier era, thinking of the importance of eternity in the presence of time, summarized it in words that many of us have known since Sunday school, only one life, it will soon be past, and only what's done for Jesus will last. That, of course, doesn't mean only religious things will last or only things that are done when we're in church buildings will last, because hopefully all that the child of God is doing is being done for Jesus. Tomorrow morning's journeys, uh, tomorrow's laundry, tomorrow's studies, whatever tomorrow brings is just another addition to this dash between the dates. When Jim Elliot was a student of Wheaton College, as he continued to chronicle his life as a young man at that point, he writes on one occasion in his diary, he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Perhaps he'd even been reading the kind of statements that we find here in these final verses of Luke chapter 14, a series of quite striking, challenging statements which Jesus addresses to the crowds that were traveling with him. Now, this morning, we were dealing with the verses that had him within the home of a prominent Pharisee. And as we move from 24 to 25, Luke gives us the record of his ongoing journey towards Jerusalem. And it's quite striking, is it not, that Jesus is apparently not trying to build a large crowd. Many who today are preaching uh, apparently want to build a large crowd. And we may even be tempted to do just about anything that can be done in order to get a large crowd. But when you think about the example and ministry of the Lord Jesus, on a significant number of occasions, he turns and addresses an increasingly large gathering, and he says to them essentially this, I'm not sure that you folks are picking up on what it really means to become my follower. And so I want to tell you again what it means, just in case any of you would like to slip away. When he does that, on one occasion, the crowds begin to leave en masse until he reduces the numbers to 12, and then he looks each of his disciples in the eye, and he says to them, and what about you fellows? Do you want to leave as well? Not exactly what you would say is the contemporary strategy for church growth thinking, where we would reduce the lowest common denominator to the, uh, the, the point that will be most amenable to everyone so that we can get as large a number as we possibly can. Jesus apparently is concerned to do the reverse. Now, why is that? Well, it's because he's not really interested in spectators. He's looking for recruits. Unless the curiosity of these people that are part and parcel of the crowd gives way to commitment, then what he tells them is, you just frankly cannot be my disciples. Indeed, Jesus is so straightforward about this that I think some of us were wincing as we read what he said. And he makes three separate statements 
concerning why it is that these individuals cannot be his disciples. Earlier, in chapter 13, in verse uh, 24, he had said to the people who were around him, then, I want you to make every effort to enter through the narrow door. And we pondered then the significance of Jesus as speaking in what seemed to be rather restrictive terms. What he was saying was, my invitation is as wide as it can possibly be, but you need to understand that the point of entry is really very narrow. And here in this section, at the end of chapter 14, he explains what he means by the narrowness of Christian commitment. Now, we've said before that no one could ever accuse Jesus of soft-selling things, of obscuring the issues so as to build a crowd, of putting the tough parts of what it means to be meant to be a Christian somehow or another in the small print, burying it uh, at the back of his brochure, as it were. Now, that's the kind of thing that the devil does when he's recruiting people. The devil goes out and he says, now, I've got a fantastic deal for you. If you will follow me, I can introduce you to life, and I can introduce you to happiness, and I can introduce you to freedom. And his appeals are so extensive that many sign up. Having signed up, they discover when they read the small print that they're actually being introduced to death and to bondage and to disfigurement and to pain. Jesus puts it right at the very top of the list. In case any of you are concerned, uh, simply to be spectators here, he says, I need to let you know that uh, there is no place for complacency. There is no place for half-heartedness if you want to be one of my disciples. One of the themes that seems to be confusing in the gospel narratives is that there seems to be two different messages that Jesus is communicating. One to the Pharisees, which is this hard and heavy price to be one of his followers. And the second being that which he gives to the the tax collectors and the the ladies in ill repute and and those who were uh, outsiders and and Samaritans cast out cast aside the those who were demon possessed and even the Gentiles this warm and inviting message of come and receive eternal life and the reason it's complicated or at least it's confusing is because there is a a significance to understanding the cost of our salvation. For you and me, salvation costs nothing because we don't pay the price. We don't uh, earn God's righteousness. In fact, uh, it's not by works. It's not by anything that we can boast in. It's through faith and, and grace in Jesus Christ. But there is a cost to salvation. The cost is what Jesus bore on the cross. He paid the price. Now, we're looking at stories through here in the Gospel of Luke. You see the story where Jesus is in the Simon, the Pharisee's house, and and he sees this woman who is anointing his feet with, with precious perfume. And Jesus shares this parable about the cost of this debt these two servants owed. One owed a small debt and another one owed a larger debt. And he said, now, which one would be more grateful? It's obviously the one who was forgiven much. And Jesus says, you've discerned rightly. But the, the confusion there is that the price was not different. For the individuals, what was forgiven was uh, based on their sins. But the price that was actually paid for both of them was the same. It was a price that Jesus bore on the cross. So when we're looking at these commands in Scripture, the, the message that Jesus is communicating throughout the Gospel of Luke, that we have to deny ourselves, we have to take up our cross, that we need to reject all connections and all relationships to love Christ. In fact, Jesus said that to his own father and mother, or his own mother and brothers, when he said, uh, my family 
are those who hear the word and do the word. So what he's saying here is that, yes, salvation for us is free because it is a gift from God through Jesus Christ received by faith. But the cost of discipleship takes into account the price that was paid, our sins that were forgiven. And when we understand the gospel, we live, we want to live in a manner that is pleasing and honoring to God. It does not earn us righteousness. It does not earn us favor with God. It does not give us a better standing in the kingdom of God. But what it does is it shows our gratitude, our love, and our devotion to the one who has ultimately paid the price for our sins. When we talk about being Christians, that term, followers of Christ, Christian means that we have given our life to Christ. And the only way that we can come before the Father is in Him. Therefore, we are a reflection of him to the world around us, and we ought to bear his name proudly, but also in our lives and devotion, show and demonstrate to the world that we are not our own. We've been bought with a price, and we belong to him. If we've been able to encourage you today, I hope that you'll let us know, and that you would be an encouragement to us. You can write to us at Songtime Radio, P.O. Box 100, Barnstable, Massachusetts, 02630, Or you can give us a call. It's 508-362-7070. You can head over to our website at songtime.com or even look us up on social media. But don't forget to tune in again tomorrow. We'll continue our study looking here at Luke 14 and this interesting component where Jesus says we have to unattach ourselves from all other relationships if we want to cling to Jesus. Our devotion to Jesus is to be of such strength, that even our best love for our spouse will actually be seen to look like total disregard or hatred in comparison. On behalf of everyone here at Songtime, we want to thank you for listening. From Cape Cod, I'm Adam Miller with our theme verse, Luke 14, 11. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. <laughs>